I am exceptionally excited about what I have prepared this morning. I feel as if I've got all these words bubbling inside of me, just waiting to come out. I am also exceptionally nervous about the vulnerability that it takes to stand up and speak. And a few months ago, I had been asked to do a series of ladies' meetings. I had been given any topic that I wanted, which is a nightmare for me with the things that go on inside my head. But as I prepared for that, I was filled, I, start, I was filled with all kinds of self-doubt and um, voices in my head just reminding me, you can't really do this. You know, you, you really need to prove yourself. If it's not perfect, it's not gonna be good enough. And there's a performance that comes with the role of speaking. And I, I learned a long time ago from Ian Goulet, who used to be a pastor of this church, he taught us that we should find a place where we could hear God's voice. And for me, it's running. Now, I'm a terrible runner. I run downhill and I walk uphill. In fact, I run so badly that I've been offered a lift about four or five times <laughs> by concerned passerbyers on some of my uphill runs. But nonetheless, it is a place that I have learned to shut out some of the other voices and hear God speak. And so out on a run one day while wrestling with the negativity and my natural self and the way my head works, God very kindly gave me a picture that has set a different direction on the way I see myself and the way I see others. He took me back to a time when our children were in nursery school and uh, one of them is here today and I promise not to embarrass anyone. But they used to come home from nursery school and they had grubby hands and grubby school bags. And now you can see the mother heart just coming all out in memory of those days. And they would have these grubby hands and these grubby school bags and perhaps the leftover half a banana that they were saving for later or maybe a peanut butter sandwich that hadn't quite made its way back into the lunchbox. And out of these bags, with eyes just shining with anticipation, they would pull out the works of art that they had created in the morning. And I knew that you would share in my pride, so I brought them with me. <laughs> Can you see the beauty of this creation? Can you see the stroke of genius that every brush went into this. Anna, I knew that you would just think, Anna is a friend of mine and she believes there's an artist in everyone. Um, can you see how perfectly imperfect they are? Can you see how they've colored outside the lines and it's more than good enough? And so as God gave me the picture, so this is what I used to do. I used to take the artwork and my children think I'm genetically programmed to think they're amazing. It's not true. My children are really, really amazing. And so I would take their works of art and I would put them on the fridge. So proud, so, so proud because I wanted everybody to see it. And that's when I heard God's voice loud and clear 
like Norse's song, rushing like a rushing water. I, I can only say that the voice of God is very different to some other voices in my head. And, and I, I can always, I can always know what it is because it just speaks through everything else. And there's an overwhelming peace that comes when I hear his voice. And this is what I heard. This is how I see you. I'm okay with your effort. I'm okay with your imperfections. I'm okay when you color outside the line. This is beautiful to me. And this is more than good enough. And so my journey about my concept, my self-concept, and my value in God took a completely different turn that day. About me becoming okay with my imperfections. I am imperfect. I will make mistakes. And I am still more than good enough in my heavenly father's eyes. And he puts me on his fridge. And if I could give you anything this morning, if I could give you a gift, I would give you a fridge magnet with a mirror on it for you all to take home, for you to put yourself on the fridge so that every time you look at that, you are reminded of a heavenly father's love for you. You are perfectly imperfect. You will make mistakes and God has put you on his fridge. If you're wondering if I'm going to do an outline this morning, I am. I have an outline. I was lucky enough about a hundred years ago to study alongside some young men who were being trained to be pastors. And I remember our theology professor saying to them that if they ever, or when they got an opportunity to preach, they must make sure and have three points and a poem. Because if you have three points and a poem, you can't go wrong in any message. And so in honor of those Bible professors, although I'm absolutely convinced they never imagined it would be me using their advice one day, I'm going to do three points, not quite a poem, but a story at the end. And I'm going to speak under a topic before you do it. Let me, I've just missed something out. I want to talk about something before I go there. I want you to know that this journey about God's love for me and how he sees me and the magnet on the fridge is not a completed journey. I'm not telling you a testimony of how I've popped out the other end and somehow I've got it and that's how I see myself. You see, sometimes my picture is so perfect that I wanna frame it and I wanna show it all for everybody to see. And on other days, my dark days, those days I'd literally like to hide the picture that, that, that I am part of for no one else to see. But here's what I've heard from the Lord. There is a gift in my imperfection. And by authenticity, showing up, warts and all, to speak out of my strength and to speak out of my struggle, to show you my success and to show you my failure, that's my goal this morning. Brene Brown puts it like this. Authenticity is the daily practice of letting go of who we think we're supposed to be and embracing who we are. Choosing authenticity means cultivating the courage to be perfect, to set boundaries, and to allow ourselves to be vulnerable. Exercising the compassion that comes from knowing that we are all made of strength and struggle, and nurturing the connection and the sense of belonging that can only happen 
when we believe that we are enough. Authenticity demands wholehearted living and loving. Even when it's hard, even when we're wrestling with this fear and shame of not being good enough, and especially when the joy is so intense that we're afraid to let ourselves feel it, mindfully practicing authenticity during our most soul-searching struggles is how we invite grace and joy and gratitude into our lives. And so one of my goals this morning is to show up with authenticity. I'm saying up front, I have no desire to speak a message of performance. I have no need to be perfect or no need to prove myself, but just to show you parts of myself, my strengths and my struggles and to speak from my victories and my failures. And doing that this morning, we're going to look at a title called Creating a Culture of Safety. In the midst of a culture of criticism. Now notice I put a culture of criticism in brackets. It's, it's like I'm whispering it. It's, it's, uh, just, it's there, but it's not really there. The reason I put it in is because I think, and I'm not absolutely sure, but I think that the opposite to creating a safe culture where people can show up warts and all is when we go to our default of criticism. And so that's all I'm gonna say about it. I'm not gonna mention the word again, but we're gonna move straight on. In order to create a safe culture, one in which we are personally free to show up in, one in which we can practice, I can practice, you can practice, I invite you to practice authenticity that you can show up in your real self, warts and all, how do we do that? Well, here are the three points in a poem. The first one that we've got to do is we've got to understand how God sees us. Secondly, how do we see ourselves? And thirdly, how do we see others? Last week, Richard spoke about the body, the soul, and the spirit. And in it, he made reference to how important it is that we think in the correct way. He mentioned and made reference to a verse, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. The battle in creating a safe place for me to show up in, allowing myself to show up with authenticity, to be able to expose the dark places of myself, my fearful thoughts, my realness, my brokenness. The battle comes first in our mind. Romans puts it like this. In Romans chapter 12, verse two, it says, do not conform to the pattern of the world, but be transformed with the renewing of your mind. And then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is his pleasing and perfect will of God. I find it so interesting that researchers in psychology spend hundreds and thousands of dollars every single year to do empirical testing in order to get data, in order to create theories, in order to make therapies, in order to help hurting people. In other words, what they do is their goal, obviously, is to help people to do life better. 
In order to do that, there's one therapy called rational emotive behavioral therapy. Don't let the word scare you. According, it's very simple theory. According to rational emotive behavioral therapy, it is our thinking about events that leads to emotional and behavioral upset. And so what happens in this therapy is people are taught to examine their thinking because all the research shows that if you can challenge your thinking and change your thinking and think in a better way, you will then feel better, which means you will act better. Does it remind you of Romans chapter 12 in any way? Now, um, I'm not a graphic designer and you'll see exactly why by the next slide. This is my um, attempt, there's me. You can get all these shapes on PowerPoint if you ever need to use them. But there I am, I'm a happy face and I have this huge heart. I didn't know how to do arms, so I've only got legs. But that's me over there and what you can't, oh, my arrows aren't so clear, but it doesn't matter. The, what I'm trying to depict there is what I think affects how I feel, which then affects what I do. And then I was supposed to have arrows going back from do feel back to think, because what I do affects what I feel, which affects what I think, which then affects what I feel, which then affects what I do. Do you get the picture? I'll give you an example. If I'm having, if I'm feeling not good about myself, um, and I phone a mate, and I say, hey, would you like to have coffee with me? And that mate is incredibly busy. And she says, oh, no, I can't, not today. I'm taking the kids to this, and I've got that, and blah, blah. If I interpret that event to say, oh, you see, nobody likes you. She doesn't want to spend time with you. I then go home. Isolate myself because now I feel like I'm not wanted. The event has confirmed the fact that I am not good enough. I then interpret that behavior, go home, sit in my house, not invite anybody else. I feel more lonely because I'm acting lonely, which then makes me think more lonely, which then makes me feel more lonely, which then makes me act more lonely. Can you see the vicious cycle? However, let me use another example. If I want to be fit and trim and I'm about to be 52, so I'm like going at it and I'm thinking I need to be strong. So what happens if I wake up one day and I think I really need to exercise and I think, ah, oh, I don't feel like exercising. Oh, you know, it doesn't really make any difference. I've tried this before, it doesn't really work. And so I don't exercise. Then what happens is it goes back into my brain because I've acted in a way that you see it doesn't work. However, if I exercise when I feel like don't when I feel like not exercising, I then send a message back to myself. I have now exercised. That behavior sends a message back to my heart. Ha! Huh, look, you did the right thing, which then sends a message to my head that says well done. You see, so it, is, it starts in the thinking, but the behavior counts. Unless we are able to see ourselves the way God sees us, it is impossible for us to feel good thoughts, 
and to do good things. So how does God see us? I have to talk very fast. How does God see you? One of my favorite characters in the Bible is a guy called David. Now, I don't know how much you know about David, but if you were ever at Sunday school, you probably know David as the little boy who killed the shepherd, who killed the lion and the bear. Or maybe you know about the kid who killed Goliath the giant with the slingshot, with the stones. Or maybe if you're a bit older, you might remember him as the king that committed adultery with Bathsheba. Or maybe you remember him as the guy who sent Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, to the front line in hopes that he would be killed so that Bathsheba would be free to marry him. So depending on what story you're looking at, David is either a hero or a zero in your eyes. The thing I like to, I think why I like David is because he was a man who displayed great courage and had many failures. He was a man filled with success and filled with struggle. And one of my favorite things about David is in Acts chapter 13, this is what it says. I have found David, this is God talking. I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. Do you not find that remarkable? David really messed up. He really, really messed up. Strength and struggle. And yet, when God looked at David, he was a man after his own heart. In fact, the very choice of David was an interesting calling. Saul was king of Israel at the time, doing a horrible job. And Samuel knew that there needed to be a new king, but he was kind of dragging his heels on it. God eventually convinced Samuel to go and find a new king. So Samuel went to the house of Jesse. Now, this was a good place to go because Jesse had a whole lot of sons. So there was definitely going to be somebody that he could choose from. Jesse lined up seven of his sons for um, Samuel to choose from. And the firstborn, a good choice. He looked like a king. He came out there. Samuel looked at him and Samuel said to God, surely the Lord's anointed is upon him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance. Do not look at his height or his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not what man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but where does God look? He looks at the heart. So God knowing David with all of his imperfections, knowing how much David would color outside the lines, he still chose him to be king. In Romans 8, it sums us up quite nicely. Romans 8 verses 1 and 4. It says, therefore, there is now no condemnation. So how are you going to put yourself on the fridge? How are you going to see yourself the way God sees you? It really is through the lenses of this verse. There is no condemnation, which takes us to the next point. How does God see us? Perfect with our imperfections, capable of making great mistakes and still lovable and worth putting on the fridge. So then how do we see ourselves? 
I find it so interesting that Psalm 139 is a psalm that is attributed to David. David, with all of his mistakes, was still able to write these words. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am wonderfully and fearfully made. Your works are wonderful in spite of my mess ups. I know that full well. Your frame was, my frame was not hidden for you when I was made in the secret place. When I was formed together in the depths of your earth, your eyes saw your unformed, my unformed body and all my days were written for me before one of them came into being. I wanna speak very briefly on this point. Has it ever occurred to you why God made you? Look at you, look, look at the combination of DNA, the way your head thinks, your physical attributes, your personality, every single thing that has happened to you. Has it ever wondered to you, has it ever occurred to you why when you were in your mother's womb, just you, God's hands were on you, making you, creating you, exactly. He could have done anything. He could have chosen to create anything. He could have combined those DNA and made somebody else. But he made you. Why? Because you are so lovable with everything that you've done. You are worthy. There is no condemnation. And God has put you on his fridge. Can you do that for yourself? Can you see yourself the way God sees you? Because unless we have that as a starting place, we're not gonna be able to do that for others. We're not gonna be able to allow people to show up in their mess, in their sin, in their mistakes, and sit with them and say, I'm here. I'm here for you without judgment, without condemnation, and just with support. I am zooming in on the end. Romans 8, chapter, uh, verse 38. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons, nor neither the present nor the future, nor, nor anything you have ever done, your worst mistakes, that secret maybe you carry in your heart, that thing that you would hate for us to flash up on a Sunday morning on the screen, that thing that you hide, that thing that you don't want anybody to see, that thing that thing will not be able to separate you from the love of God, that thing. Have you got it? Have we got it? Are you on the fridge? Okay, so how do we see others? I hope that's the next slide, because that's, yay. All right, how do we see others? They are imperfect, just like you. They will make terrible mistakes, just like you. And they are still lovable and worth putting on the fridge, just like you. How much time have I got? Five minutes? Okay. I need five minutes. When Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment was, he replied with, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, him being God and him creating us, like I so get the first part. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. 
But why on earth did he add the second part onto that? Love your neighbor as yourself. If you've been part of Christianity for any amount of time, you probably know that that's the very foundation of what we believe. Love God, love people. But loving people is very difficult. Do you not think? They're scary. They make mistakes. Sometimes they hurt us by mistake, and sometimes they hurt us on purpose. So they have bad days. And sometimes when their toothpaste tube is squeezed, yucky things come out, and that impacts us. So why do you think God said, why do you think he said that this is part of the greatest commandment to love people? It's part of the greatest commandment. This is not something we can skip over. This is part of the core calling. In Genesis chapter 3, the Lord said, when he created us, let us make man in our image. The image of God is plural, which implies that there is a relationship. If we are created in a relational image, it then makes sense that we need to be loving people. We can't just love God. Because if we're not loving people, if we have a relational image, there's something inside of us that's going to be absolutely starved if we don't have relationships. Again, psychology spent thousands and thousands of dollars just to say what God had already said. And in the Harvard study of adult development, um, which was one of the longest studies of all time, scientists came up with a very surprising result. The director of the study made this statement. The surprising finding is that our relationships and how happy we are in our relationships has a powerful influence in our health. Taking care of your body is important, but tending to your relationships is a form of self-care as well. And they thought that that was revelation. If only they had asked one of us. Love God and love people. Because without loving people, there is a part of our relational image of God that is starved to death. Brene Brown puts it this way. If we have one or two people in our lives who can sit with us and hold space for our shame stories and love us for our strengths and our struggles, we are incredibly lucky. If we have a friend or a small group of friends or family who embraces our imperfections, our vulnerability and power and fills us up with a sense of belonging, we are incredibly lucky. To end off, I'm going to tell you a story. It's not quite a poem, but it is one of my favorite stories about some monkeys. If any of the ladies are here that were in the ladies meeting, you've heard me tell the story again. I literally take every opportunity I can to weave it into anything that I speak about. A number of years ago, some researchers were measuring the effects of relationships on the cortisol levels of our brains. Cortisol is a hormone associated with stress. In this particular experiment, a monkey was put in a cage and exposed to high levels of psychological stress. Loud noises, flashing lights, they pretty much scared him to death. Don't worry, I don't like that part of the study, but I like the results. When the monkey was totally terrified, the scientists took a baseline measure of the hormone levels in the monkey's brain as it was exposed to the stresses. 
Next, the researchers made one change to the experiment, only one. They opened the monkey cage and they put in a buddy monkey. And they did exactly the same things to the monkey. Same flashing lights, same loud noises, just they had two monkeys together. Have we got some monkeys? <laughs> and then they measured the cortisol levels. Guess what happened? The cortisol levels reduced by half. Half. No other changes. We need, monkeys need, furry things to help them deal with the stress. I don't think we're too far off the monkeys. I think that one of the reasons why God said love people is because he knew it would be so difficult to keep them on the fridge because we know how often they color outside the lines and it takes a lot of forgiveness in order to keep them on the fridge. However, I need you. You need me and you need each other. And if you get anything out of this message, I hope that the first thing that you will get is you are perfectly imperfect and you will make mistakes and so is the person sitting next to you. And that doesn't mean that you can't keep them on the fridge. Let's pray.